Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha in this book series titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. We're in volume 12 today, which is titled Lowly Arts. We're going to be studying chapters 21 through 30. And the way that we typically start this class is we'll do meditation to kind of prepare the mind, just a little bit of meditation. But today, because of the size of the chapters, we're just going to move right into actually reading the chapters. And then I'll share some teachings on them. And then you're welcome to ask any questions that you like. The way that you ask questions is put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Our moderator, Miranda, will see that and be sure your questions get asked during the class. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So thank you all for joining for today's class. We'll go ahead and move right into sharing the first chapter that we're going to be studying today, which is chapter 21. And um, Miranda is kind of uh, managing who's going to be reading and we'll just turn things over to all of you and specifically Miranda. Yes, thank you, sir. I'll read chapter 21. Six unsurpassed things. Monks, there are these six unsurpassed things. What six? One, the unsurpassed sight. Two, the unsurpassed hearing. Three, the unsurpassed game. Four, the unsurpassed training. Five, the unsurpassed service, and six, the unsurpassed recollection, recalls, remembers. One, and what monks is the unsurpassed sight? Here, someone goes to see the elephant gem, the horse gem, the jewel gem, or to see various sights, or else they go to see an ascetic or Brahmin of wrong views, of wrong practice. There is this seeing, this I do not deny, but this seeing is low, common, worldly, not honorable, and unbeneficial. It does not lead to freedom from strong feelings, elimination, peace, direct knowledge or experience, enlightenment, and nibbana. When, however, one of settled confidence, of settled determination, decided, full of confidence, goes to see the Tathagata or a disciple of the Tathagata, this unsurpassed sight is for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and grief, for the passing away of pain and sadness, for the achievement of the method to attain enlightenment, for the realization of Nibbana. This is called the unsurpassed sight. Such is the unsurpassed sight. And how is there the unsurpassed hearing? Here, someone goes to hear the sound of drums, 
the sound of lutes, the sound of singing, or to hear various sounds, or else they go to hear the teachings of ascetic, ascetic or Brahmin of wrong views, of wrong practice. There is this hearing, this I do not deny, but this hearing is low, common, worldly, not honorable and unbeneficial. It does not lead to freedom from strong feelings, elimination, peace, direct knowledge, enlightenment, and nibbana. When, however, one of settled confidence, of settled determination, decided, full of confidence, goes to hear the Tathagata or disciple of the Tathagata, this unsurpassed hearing is for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and grief, for the passing away of pain and sadness, for the achievement of the method to attain enlightenment, for the realization of Nibbana. This is called the unsurpassed hearing, such as the unsurpassed sight and the unsurpassed hearing. And how is there the unsurpassed gain? Here, someone gains a son, a wife, or wealth, or they gain various goods, or else they obtain belief in an ascetic or Brahmin of wrong views, of wrong practice. There is this, I do not deny, but this gain is low, common, worldly, not honorable and unbeneficial. It does not lead to freedom from strong feelings, elimination, peace, direct knowledge, enlightenment, and Nibbana. When, however, one of settled confidence, of settled determination, decided, full of confidence, obtains confidence in the Tathagata or in a disciple of the Tathagata, this unsurpassed gain is for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and grief, for the passing away of pain and sadness, for the achievement of the method to attain enlightenment, for the realization of Nibbana. This is called the unsurpassed gain, such as the unsurpassed sight, the unsurpassed hearing, and the unsurpassed gain. And how is there the unsurpassed training? Here, someone trains in elephantry, in horsemanship, in chariotry, in archery, in swordsmanship, or they train in various fields, or else they train under an ascetic or Brahmin of wrong views, of wrong practice. There is this training, this I do not deny, but this training is low, common, worldly, not honorable and unbeneficial. It does not lead to freedom from strong feelings, elimination, peace, direct knowledge, enlightenment and Nibbana. When, however, one of settled confidence, of settled determination, decided, full of confidence, trains in the higher virtuous behavior, moral conduct, the higher mind, mental discipline, and the higher wisdom in the teachings and discipline proclaimed by the Tathagata. This unsurpassed training is for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and grief, for the passing away of pain and sadness, for the achievement of the method to attain enlightenment, for the realization of Nibbana. This is called the unsurpassed training, such as the unsurpassed sight, the unsurpassed hearing, the unsurpassed gain, and the unsurpassed training. And how is there the unsurpassed service? Here, someone serves a katya, a brahmin, a householder, or they serve various others, <clears throat> or else they serve an ascetic or brahmin of wrong views, of wrong practice, there is this kind of service I do not deny, but this kind of service is low, common, worldly, not honorable, and unbeneficial. It does not lead to freedom from strong feelings, elimination, peace, direct knowledge, enlightenment, and nibbana.
When, however, one of settled confidence, of settled determination, decided, full of confidence, serves the Tathagata or disciple of the Tathagata, this unsurpassed service is for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and grief, for the passing away of pain and sadness, for the achievement of the method to attain enlightenment, for the realization of Nibbana. This is called the unsurpassed service. Thus there is the unsurpassed sight, the unsurpassed hearing, the unsurpassed gain, the unsurpassed training, and the unsurpassed service. And how is there the unsurpassed recollection? Here someone recollects the gain of a son, a wife, or wealth, or else they recollect various kinds of gain, or else they recollect an ascetic or Brahmin of wrong views, of wrong practice. There is this kind of recollection, this I do not deny. But this kind of recollection is low, common, worldly, not honorable, and unbeneficial. It does not lead to freedom from strong feelings, elimination, peace, direct knowledge, enlightenment, and nibbana. When, however, one of settled confidence, of settled determination, decided, full of confidence, recollects the Tathagata or a disciple of the Tathagata, this unsurpassed recollection is for the purification of beings for the overcoming of sorrow and grief, for the passing away of pain and sadness, for the achievement of the method to attain enlightenment, for the realization of Nibbana. This is called the unsurpassed recollection. These monks are the six unsurpassed things. Having gained the best of sights and the unsurpassed hearing, having acquired the unsurpassed gain, pleased with the unsurpassed training, attentive in service, they develop recollection connected with seclusion, secure, leading to the deathless, joyful in mindfulness, wise, restrained by virtue, in time they realize where it is that discontentedness is eliminated. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here, the Buddha is going through six things that he's basically recasting and showing how it's truly learning and practicing the teachings that leads to this unsurpassed sight or hearing or gain training service and recollection because oftentimes we tend to think of you know this wonderful sight as being able to see something really clearly with the eyes or hearing something with the ears or gaining something in terms of wealth and so forth and so on all these different things that the buddha was sharing in the first paragraph of what somebody might typically think of when they think about these things but then he recast it and he shows how by learning and practicing these teachings, that's really what produces this unsurpassed sight, hearing, gain, training, service, and recollection. Because if somebody truly deeply understands the teachings of the Buddha and they've been working their way along this path and discontentedness is diminishing and ultimately is eliminated as the mind gets to enlightenment, you'll understand that that's the most wonderful thing that you've ever done for your life the most wonderful thing you could ever do for your life is to completely cultivate the wisdom that you need in order to completely eliminate all discontentedness in the mind. So here the Buddha is just recasting all of these things into helping you see that it's really learning and practicing the path to enlightenment that's going to truly lead to all these beneficial results. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Uh, it does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. All right. So we will go to chapter 22, which is the next chapter. 
Um, yes, sir. Could I ask you to please read chapter 22, sir? Sure. This chapter is titled Demonstration of Confidence in One Endowed with Confidence. And this first part is just kind of setting up what the Buddha is about to teach. This is the time for it, fortunate one. This is the time for it, fortunate one. The perfectly enlightened one should explain the demonstrations of confidence. Now I will find out whether or not this monk exhibits the demonstrations of confidence. Then listen, Subhuti, and attend closely. I will speak. Here, Subhuti, a monk is virtuous, practicing moral conduct. He resides restrained by the training guidelines, possessed of good conduct and wise decision making, seeing danger in the slightest faults. Having undertaken the training guidelines, he trains in them. This is a demonstration of confidence and one endowed with confidence. Two, a monk has learned much, remembers what he has learned, and accumulates what he has learned. Those teachings that are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end, with the right meaning and phrasing, which proclaim the perfectly complete and pure spiritual life, such teachings as these he has learned much of, retained in mind, recited verbally, mentally investigated, and penetrated well by view. This too is a demonstration of confidence and one endowed with confidence. 3. Again, a monk has wholesome friends, wholesome companions, wholesome comrades. This too is a demonstration of confidence and one endowed with confidence. 4. Again, a monk is easy to correct and possesses qualities that make him easy to correct. He is patient and receives instruction respectfully. This, too, is a demonstration of confidence and one endowed with confidence. Again, a monk is skillful and diligent in attending to the diverse chores that are to be done for his fellow monks. He possesses sound ability to make decisions about them in order to carry them out and arrange them properly. This, too, is a demonstration of confidence and one endowed with confidence. 6. Again, a monk adores the teachings and is pleased in his statements, filled with significant joy in, regards, in regard to the teachings and discipline. This, too, is a demonstration of confidence and one endowed with confidence. 7. Again, a monk has aroused energy for abandoning unwholesome qualities and acquiring wholesome qualities. He is strong, firm in effort, not casting off the duty of cultivating wholesome qualities. This, too, is a demonstration of confidence and one endowed with confidence. 8. Again, a monk gains at will, without trouble or difficulties, the four jhanas that constitute the higher mind and are peaceful dwellings in this very life. This, too, is a demonstration of confidence and one endowed with confidence. 9. Again, a monk recollects, recalls, or remembers his countless past lives, that is, one birth, two births, three births, four births, five births, ten births, twenty births, thirty births, forty births, fifty births, a hundred births, 
a thousand births, a hundred thousand births, many eons of world dissolution, many eons of world evolution, many eons of world dissolution and world evolution. Thus, there I was, so named, of such a clan and such an appearance, such was my food, such my experience of pleasure and pain, such my lifespan, passing away from there. I was reborn elsewhere, and there too I was so named of such a clan, with such an appearance, such was my food, such my experience of pleasure and pain, such my lifespan, passing away from there, I was reborn here. Thus, he recollects his countless past lives with their aspects and details. This, too, is a demonstration of confidence and one endowed with confidence. 10. Again, the divine eye, or the third eye, which is purified and surpasses the human, a monk sees beings passing away and being reborn, wholesome and unwholesome, beautiful and ugly, fortunate and unfortunate, and he understands how beings fare in accordance with their gamma. Thus, <clears throat> these beings who engaged in misconduct by body, speech, and mind, who abusively criticized the noble ones, held wrong view, and undertook unwholesome gamma based on wrong view, with the breakup of the body after death, have been reborn in the plane of misery, in a bad destination, in the lower world, in hell. But these beings who engage in wholesome conduct by body, speech, and mind, who did not abusively criticize the noble ones, who held right view and undertook wholesome gamma based on right view, with the breakup of the body after death, have been reborn in a good destination, in a heavenly world. Thus, the divine eye, which is purified and surpasses the human, he sees beings passing away, and being reborn, unwholesome and wholesome, beautiful and ugly, fortunate and unfortunate, and he understands how beings fare in accordance with their gamma. This too is a demonstration of confidence and one endowed with confidence. 11. Again with the destruction of the taints, a monk has realized for himself, with direct knowledge, experience, in this very life, the taintless liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom, and having entered upon it, he resides in it. This too is a demonstration of confidence and one endowed with confidence. All right, so this chapter here, the Buddha talks in the 10 fetters about a fetter called doubt. This is the third fetter that is part of the 10 fetters. In order to get to the first stage of enlightenment, an individual would need to eliminate the first three fetters, personal existence view, wrong behavior and observances, and doubt. Doubt is doubt about the Buddha, doubt about the teachings, doubt about the community that you're part of, doubt about your teacher, and your own doubt about your own ability to attain enlightenment. So the opposite of doubt is confidence. And the Buddha here is explaining how one would build that confidence to eliminate doubt. Because you don't eliminate doubt 
by just blind belief and saying, okay, I don't doubt the teachings any longer. Instead, what you do is you learn, you reflect, and you practice the teachings. And the more that you see the truth that the discontentedness of the mind is gradually diminishing, you get to a point where you have no doubt that these teachings are leading to a better and improved condition of mind. And you see that your life is improving as well. So you eliminate the doubt through investigating the teachings. That's how you eliminate doubt. When you first start on the path, and even the first three months, six months, maybe even a year, there might be a certain amount of doubt that's in the mind. Was the Buddha really a Buddha? Did he really exist? Do his teachings really truly lead to enlightenment? Is this community that I'm part of really supportive and encouraging? Can this teacher all the way over in Thailand with a shaved head and white clothes really lead me to enlightenment? Do I have the ability myself to even learn and reflect and practice to get to enlightenment? You might have these doubts going through the mind. And this can actually be a healthy doubt. It can actually be motivating and encouraging. It can actually build motivation to investigate the teachings, to roll up the sleeves. Doubt can also be a real hindrance and you can turn away from the teachings and walk away from this path because of doubt. But the way that you use doubt to your advantage is use it as a healthy doubt that it now makes you intrigued and inquisitive to actually investigate the teachings and as you investigate the teachings and you're removing more and more of the pollution of mind the buddha is explaining to you here how you can observe that the confidence is starting to increase in the mind in this first one he talks about this virtuous behavior this practicing of moral conduct that you restrain the mind and you practice this good, wholesome conduct, seeing the slightest thoughts and seeing danger in those slightest thoughts. Because if you start off the way that the Buddha taught his students, is he always taught right view, of course, to understand the Four Noble Truths, but then he taught the moral conduct so that you can clean up your moral conduct because that's going to make a huge improvement in your life. And that's kind of like the first step. And as you improve your moral conduct through right speech, right action, and right livelihood, with the five precepts plugging into that, you really start cleaning up the decisions you're making around your moral conduct. You'll see all these improvements that are happening. But the mind's still discontent. You can't just improve your moral conduct. But you start building this confidence in the teachings because you see that they're actually working to improve your conduct. And you see your relationship starting to improve because you're not causing harm through your speech, your actions, or your livelihood. And then each one of these, we could really go through them one by one and I can help you see, but I think you can see on your own now that you understand why the Buddha is talking about confidence is he's talking about confidence to help you eradicate doubt so that as you go through each one of these 11, as you do each one and as you build up your practice more and more, you get to a point where all doubt has been eliminated. I would like to mention this one here where he talks about recollection of past lives. Not everybody is going to experience that. It's not something that every single person on the path to enlightenment experiences. So just because you don't experience your past lives, it doesn't mean you don't have confidence. It means that if you do observe your past lives, boy, will your confidence in these teachings go up because you will surely know the cycle of rebirth is 100% real and you will have 
needed to eliminate a certain amount of pollution in the mind to be able to recall those past memories as well. And some people have even had something as simple as deja vu, which gives you a little bit of an indication of something that's happened in the past. It's not in this life, but you know that you've done this thing before, you've been in this place before. This is a recall of a past memory. So even though you might not have 100% clear recall of past lives, you might just have some residual memories that are kind of bubbling up to the surface. And then this third eye that the Buddha is talking about, this happens for everybody on the path to enlightenment. When you start moving into the jhanas, which everybody on the path to enlightenment who's actually going to get to enlightenment would eventually experience the jhanas, this is where the third eye opens up, where you start having deep wisdom and be able to look at the world and observe the world in a completely different way. And we talk about this as the third eye, being able to kind of see things in a different light than maybe you saw before. Because when the mind's heavily polluted, we carrying around this burden and we're just kind of like keeping our head down and kind of going through life. But when you start lifting off some of this pollution and you start observing the qualities of the mind, improving because the mind's now moving into the jhanas and this third eye is opening up, you start being able to see the world in a much different way, in a much different light. And then, of course, the very last one that the Buddha shares is that if somebody actually gets to enlightenment, which is what he's talking about in number 11, for sure you have confidence. By the time you get to the first stage of enlightenment, you're going to have eliminated doubt. But by the time the mind actually gets to enlightenment and you've eliminated discontent feelings and you know for a year, two years, three years and continuously for multiple years, you haven't experienced any anger, no sadness, no frustration, no irritation, no guilt, shame or fear, no boredom, no loneliness, no shyness, not even the slightest little ickiness in the mind that the mind is completely uplifted and liberated the way that the Buddha describes, when you experience that, you will have 100% confidence that he was indeed a Buddha because he lived over 2,500 years ago and his teachings are still helping people get to enlightenment today. You will have complete confidence in his teachings. You will have complete confidence in this community that you're part of, of people supporting you and encouraging you. You'll have complete confidence in your teacher because that's the person who led you and guided you to enlightenment. And of course, you'll have confidence in your own ability to attain enlightenment because you will have attained it and you will have seen the gradual progress getting to that point. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Yes, sir. I have a couple of questions. The first one being, if we know of another practitioner, another student within our community who is having doubt that's becoming kind of overwhelming for them, would it be wise for us to try to redirect them to reflect on the improvements to their mind that they have seen by following these teachings? Or would it be more wise for us to kind of step back and allow them to go on that path on their own? Yeah, there's no harm in reminding somebody about the, the progress that they've made, if you're aware of that, and then encourage them to continue to investigate. But ultimately, they have to do the work, right? Because no matter what one person says to another person, that person has to see it for themselves. They have to be able to see their progress. Oftentimes, what happens is there's 
kind of excitement at the beginning when somebody first gets on the path because there's like a craving to do something new because every time we do something new right we like we want to learn saxophone we get this craving we play with it for three months six months or a year and then it burns out and we don't want to play it anymore or we get this craving to play football or soccer or baseball or softball and we play it for a little while and then we get bored of it and we let it go right and the path to enlightenment for some people is just that next thing that they crave they get onto for three months six months a year then they realize how much hard work it really is and some people turn away from it, you know, because they're just maybe not in that place right now to be willing to do that hard work. And that's okay. You know, that's their choice and that's their decision. You can surely remind them of those things, particularly if they're reaching out and talking to you. But once you've said what you need to say to help that person, ultimately they have to remember that it's an independent journey and do the work for themselves. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Also, um, this one to go back to uh, number nine. Mm-hmm. How would someone know beyond doubt that what they are experiencing, seeing, or recalling is a past life versus just their imagination or perhaps a craving to see a past life, wishful thinking, something like that, sir? Yeah, the only thing I can speak of on this is from my own experience, I've never actually talked with anybody else that has experienced observing their past lives. So I don't know what other people experience in an observation of their past life. I only know what I experienced. What I experienced is over a consistent long-term period of time, there was consistent memories coming up to the surface of the mind to the point where injuries and problems that I had in previous lives, I was experiencing those same aches and pains in this life to the point where I would be speaking to people as if I was that other being. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I was speaking to them and speaking to them as if I was this other being. And then I realized an hour later or a couple of days later, like, whoa, what was I talking about in that conversation? Like these things were happened a lot to me where I was just talking as if I was these other people. And then there were periods of times where I would just be lying down. And then it was almost like a movie strip of all these lives like flashing before my eyes, particularly from the animal realm. When I recalled over a long term period of time, the human births, those were very profound, deep memories, like talking as if I was those people. But the animal realm it was almost like a movie screen, like an old time tape, like a movie tape, like a reel of, of movie. It was like just like going through the mind. It was like snake, goat, deer, frog, you know, da 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 da, like over, over, squirrel, you know, just repeatedly going through the mind like a wheel and just, you know, kind of this tape of, of a movie, you know, in the old time reels of, of movies. So, from the age of about six or eight, I started experiencing some physical pains that at the time I didn't know what they were. And then as these things started happening more and more in my adult life, I started looking back over my life. And I realized that as early as six or eight years old, I was already experiencing recall of memories from past lives, but I just didn't know that's what that was at the time. And then when I started having these real profound memories and I started looking back, I realized that these were all things that were happening over the course of my life. So 
that's what I've experienced. I don't know how other people experience their past lives other than kind of the bubbling up of memories. I've kind of been observing my son uh, recently over the last year or two because I've been trying to figure out what his past lives were and I haven't been asking him because I don't want to prompt him into it. But I've just been noticing since he was like eight years old, he's been really interested in the military and like looking at books of, of military equipment and particularly from Russia. He's really interested in the military in Russia. And he oftentimes is talking about it. He knows about it. He recalls it. And then, you know, he's really interested in World War II. He talks about World War II, uh, you know, pretty frequently. So we've been kind of talking about it. And it seems like he may have been a, a medic in the Russian military during World War II because he's recalling these different memories and he's kind of like sharing them with me. And just yesterday I was interested and he started talking about it and I started asking him questions like, what is a tourniquet and how do you stop somebody from bleeding if you if they get cut? You know, he's only 10 years old, so he shouldn't know these things. And I was like, you know, what do you do if somebody's legs broken? How do you fix that? And I would just ask him and see what he has to say about it. So sometimes I think what occurs is as these memories are coming up, you just see people get really interested in certain things. So like a four-year-old child who's a piano prodigy, for example, we might call them a piano prodigy. This is somebody who was probably a master pianist in the past life. And then at four years old, they can still recall how to play that music. And that person, the four-year-old child, probably doesn't know about the cycle of rebirth and wouldn't say what they're doing is based on a past life. But when you look at certain people's conduct, you can kind of see their past lives. And even not only from human births, but animal births too. You can see certain human beings that function very much like a certain type of animal, like a bird or a squirrel or a bear or a lion or something like this, based on their conduct and the way that they function. They function very much like that animal that they might have been in a previous birth from their human birth. So these are some of the things that I know about recalling past lives, but I haven't talked with other people that have experienced the recall of their past lives. So I don't know what other people experience. Yes, that's amazing. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. It does not appear that there are any other questions at this time, sir. Okay. So we'll go to chapter 23. Yes, I'll read chapter 23, sir. The perfectly enlightened one taught monks to eat at a single session. On one occasion, the perfectly enlightened one taught the monks the benefits of eating in a single session, that one will be free from illness and affliction and will enjoy lightness, strength, and a comfortable residing. Badali told the perfectly enlightened one that he was not willing to do so. Then the perfectly enlightened one agreed to allow Badali to keep the food for the next meal. Again, again, Badali told the perfectly enlightened one he was not willing to do that either. Then the venerable Badali did not present himself to the perfectly enlightened one for a whole of three month period until the robe making period where the monk said to Badali that his action was inappropriate. Badali then went to see the perfectly enlightened one. 
Venerable sir, a wrongdoing overcame me in that like an unwise person, confused and blundering, when a training precept was being made known by the perfectly enlightened one, when the community of monks was undertaking the training, I declared my refusal to observe your teaching. Venerable sir, may the perfectly enlightened one forgive my wrong, seen as such for the sake of restraint in the future. Surely, Badali, a wrongdoing overcame you, in that like an unwise person, confused and blundering, when a training precept was being made known by me, when the community of monks was undertaking the training, you declared your refusal to practice this teaching. What do you think, Badali? Suppose a monk were here, were one liberated in both ways, and I told him, come monk, be a plank for me across the mud. Would he walk across himself? Or would he dispose his body otherwise? Or would he say no? No, venerable sir. What do you think, Badali? Suppose a monk were one liberated by wisdom, a body witness, one attained to view, one liberated by confidence, a teachings follower, a confidence follower, and I told him, come monk, be a plank for me across the mud. Would he walk across himself or would he dispose his body otherwise? Or would he say no? No, venerable sir. What do you think, Badali? Were you on that occasion one liberated in both ways, or one liberated by wisdom, or a body witness, or one attained to view, or one liberated by confidence, or a teachings follower, or a confidence follower? No, venerable sir. Badali, on that occasion, were you not empty, unwise, and mistaken? Yes, venerable sir. Venerable sir, wrongdoing came to me, in that like an unwise person, confused and blundering, when a training precept was being made known by the perfectly enlightened one, when the community of monks were undertaking the training, I declared my refusal to practice this teaching. Venerable sir, may the perfectly enlightened one forgive my wrongdoing, seen as such, for the sake of restraint in the future. Surely, Badali, a wrongdoing overcame you, in that like an unwise person, confused and blundering, when a training precept was being made known by me, when the community of monks was undertaking the training, you declared your refusal to practice this teaching. But since you see your wrongdoing as such and make apologies in accordance with the teachings, we understand you. For it is growth in the noble one's discipline when one sees one's wrongdoing as such and makes apologies in accordance with the teachings by undertaking restraint for the future. All right. Thank you, Miranda. Well, let's focus on the actual teaching of what the Buddha is teaching first, and then we'll go into talking about kind of this dialogue between a teacher and a student. The first thing here is to talk about the Buddha taught his ordained practitioners to only eat one meal per day. And there was multiple reasons for this. The primary reason why he did this is because in order to get to enlightenment, you need to eliminate sensual desire. This is how the mind has craving, longing, and yearning through the sense spaces of the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, bodily contact, and the mind. There's these six sense spaces that the mind is longing for agreeable, pleasant contact so that you can arise these pleasant feelings in the mind of happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, and so forth. This is 
how the mind is yearning and longing, chasing after the objects of its affection. If it gets what it wants, it gets pleasant feelings. If it doesn't get what it wants, it gets these painful feelings. So in order to liberate the mind, you need to eliminate central desire where the mind's not longing through the sense spaces for pleasantness and comfort. But instead, you just practice the middle way and not allow the mind to cling or crave anything through the sense bases. So in some situations, what people might do is they might eat three, four, five, six times a day. They might even eat out of emotion. Have you ever been like really sad and you decide to eat some ice cream to try to feel better? So it's that, you know, flavor of the sweetness that kind of, you know, brings the mind those pleasant feelings, but it wasn't able to get to that calmness and joy by itself. It was based on the condition of the ice cream. Or have you ever been up late at night and, you know, feeling sad? Or if you broke up with a partner, you might eat and kind of have emotional eating. Whereas if you just eat one time a day, then you just eat and then you don't eat any other time of day, then you can ensure that the mind gets trained not to eat based on emotions and it can work to eliminate this central desire. So this is one of the main reasons why the Buddha taught to only eat one meal a day. It's also really helpful for the household practitioners who are providing the food for the ordained practitioners because they only needed to provide food once a day. They didn't have to do all this tremendous work to feed them three times or four times or five times a day. The Buddha taught that the ordained practitioners weren't able to cook for themselves or cultivate their own food because he was interested in bringing them together with the household practitioners because if the ordained practitioners were able to sustain their life by themselves, they could go off in the forest, sustain their life, get to enlightenment, and then never be in contact with anybody who would potentially learn the teachings. But by not allowing them to cook, and relying on the household practitioners for mutual support, then they would need to come in contact with the household practitioners. And then that's where the exchange of teachings would occur, that the ordained practitioners are receiving robes and food and other things like this to sustain their life. They're supposed to be deeply learning and practicing the teachings. And then when they're receiving these offerings of food and clothing and water and so forth, they could then share teachings with the household practitioners to benefit their life. So there's this mutual support between teachers or ordained practitioners and household practitioners. It's said by some people that they think that the food during the lifetime of the Buddha might have had a higher caloric value than today. So like a broccoli might have had more calories than a broccoli today because there are some ordained practitioners who still eat just one meal a day, but a lot of them eat two meals a day. And this could be from the degrading of our environment, the soil, the water, the climate, maybe isn't able to produce food as high of a caloric value as it did 2,500 years ago. So there's this single session of eating, this one meal a day, in order to help eliminate central desire to reduce the burden of household practitioners providing food. But you're not required to eat just once a day in order to get to enlightenment. You do need to eliminate central desire. And there's multiple teachings of how to actually practice to train the mind to eliminate central desire. Eating one meal a day is one way to do that. And you can do that. But there's other things you would need to do 
besides just eating once a day. You can't just eat once a day and eliminate central desire. You can actually eat once a day and still have central desire. So it's not like doing this one thing is going to eliminate central desire. There's multiple things that you need to do. So this is one of many practices that are taught in order to eliminate central desire. But it's not a required practice nowadays because you can train the mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment to food, but still eating and ensuring that you nourish the body and that it's healthy. What the Buddha taught on the topic of eating is he taught to eat in moderation rather than gorging yourself and giving the body all this food to digest. He taught to eat in moderation and his guidance is very specific. He says to eat just enough that you've eliminated hunger pains. And when you eliminate the hunger pains, then you know you've had enough. Where sometimes what we do is we keep eating and keep eating and keep eating and our stomach gets very full and we kind of burden the body with more food to digest. And this makes it really challenging for the body. And then now the body doesn't sustain its life as long as it could if it didn't have this burden of of digesting all this food. It's also a lot more challenging to meditate when you have a big full stomach of food. So by eating just enough to reduce hunger pains or eliminate those, now not only do you not burden the body, but you can actually produce better benefits in meditation because your mind can be focused on training the mind rather than digesting the food. So while the Buddha taught to only eat once a a day, this isn't a requirement of enlightenment. It's not that all enlightened beings will only eat once a day. If you're hungry, you should eat, but just don't overeat and ensure you're eating in moderation. So that's the first part that I would like to share based on this teaching. The other thing that you can look at with a teaching like this is look at the relationship and the conversation between the teacher and the student here. Notice how even though this student didn't heave the advice of his teacher, of the Buddha, the Buddha doesn't show any anger, doesn't show any frustration, any irritation, not even the slightest annoyance here. He's just kind of guiding and advising his students and helping the student to see, you know, what happened is that, you know, the Buddha was obviously sharing a teaching with all the monks. And then there was this one monk who was resistant and and probably, you know, maybe because of that resistance, maybe it made it harder for the teacher to share the teachings with all the other students. So if this person had a a disagreement with this teaching, he could have just listened to the Buddha. He could have just understood what he had to say and then maybe talked to him afterwards and counseled with him and had guidance with him on a private, personal, one-on-one basis. But it sounds like this student instead kind of made it more public of his refusal about this teaching. So here it's really important for teachers, whether you're ordained or unordained, to see how students are going to struggle with these teachings. They're going to have difficulties. They're going to have questions. They're not going to necessarily agree with what it is that you're teaching as part of the path to enlightenment. And that's part of that unknowing of true reality. And the mind might be resistant. But rather than being forceful or aggressive or bitter or hostile, which an enlightened being wouldn't have, you can see the fully perfectly enlightened one, the Buddha, was just very calm, very patient, just counseling him, telling his student, I understand you, right? Because this student is asking for forgiveness. But 
in order to forgive somebody, you would have to have anger and hostility built up in the mind. An enlightened being isn't going to have anger and hostility, so there's no need to forgive this person because it's just a matter of understanding this person and understanding why is it that they chose to refuse in the way that they did because these teachings are all practiced based on your own personal choices. A teacher isn't forcing their students to do anything at all. They're just guiding the students based on the students' interests to learn. And you can really see that in the undertones of this discourse where the Buddha is interacting with the student in a very polite and respectful way, even though this person rejected a teaching that the Buddha had shared and rejected it in front of other people. So it sounds like there was a bit of hostility from this student, but the Buddha had no hostility whatsoever. And that's really important to be able to see, not only in a teacher-student relationship, but as a parent and a child, or two life partners, or siblings, or with a, with a mother or a father, if you're a child and you have a relation with your mother and your father, if people disagree with you, then it doesn't mean we need to be hostile or aggressive or bitter back. We can just be polite and kind and just have a discussion and make sure we understand each other. And then we might agree by the end of the conversation, or we might not agree. We may walk away still disagreeing, but we can still be friendly and polite and respectful to each other. What questions do you guys have on this teaching? Um, yes, uh, I have a few questions. Um, with this teaching about eating once a day, what about those practitioners or even ordained practitioners who might have like something along the lines of diabetes or hypoglycemia where they have to eat at regular inter intervals many times a day in order to keep the body healthy? Yeah, this is where, you know, these te a teaching like this, it's not permanent, right? You can't say like, everybody has to eat once a day or else you can't get to enlightenment. That's not what the Buddha is saying. Instead, he's teaching how to eliminate sensual desire through eating just once a day. But nowadays, it would be impractical because we know enough about things like diabetes and hypoglycemia and things like this that they didn't probably know about 2,500 years ago. They didn't know about these things and whether they even existed, we don't know because we didn't live 2,500 years ago in this particular life. So today we know enough about the physical body and these ailments that there's going to be people that need to eat more than once a day. And that's why you then start to understand, well, what is it? Why was the Buddha teaching once a day that they should eat once a day? When you understand it's to eliminate sensual desire, then you can look at other ways to eliminate sensual desire besides this. This isn't the only way. And then, like I mentioned, if somebody ate just once a day, that's not the only thing that you need to do in order to eliminate sensual desire. It's just one aspect of sensual desire, which is taking in food. There's other many, many, many things that you need to do in order to eliminate sensual desire above and beyond just eating once a day. So you can choose to eat multiple times a day, just choose to eat in moderation in that you're not gorging and overeating. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. That kind of leads into the other, well, one of the other questions that I had. When someone is very physically active, um, this is more a personal, like at work, 
I'm very physically active and a lot of the residents have begun to give snacks. <laughs> Is that still eating in moderation if it's spaced out and it's really just whenever the stomach starts growling just to have a quick snack and enjoy what we're eating and then move on and carry on physical activity and the thought in the mind being that keeping up some caloric intake will sustain energy levels and the health of the body in order to continue having that activity level and being able to do the tasks for that that day yeah each in this each individual would need to decide for themselves about eating in moderation because everybody's activity level is different and if you're having growling in the stomach then obviously the stomach the body needs food so you know you can feel comfortable in eating in that situation but each individual is going to be different right if somebody has somebody's a competition weightlifter and they're exercising four six times a day their need to eat a certain amount of food is going to be different than someone who sits around in a temple and meditates all day so this is where you have to have mindfulness and awareness of the mind and awareness of the body so what you will probably observe is that as you meditate and as you get closer and closer to enlightenment the body is going to naturally be less and less interested in food and you're going to have smaller and smaller portions and there may be some days where you eat once a day. There might be some days where you eat twice. Or maybe some days you eat three. There may be some days where you snack in between. At least that's what my experience is like. I tend to eat about twice a day, but there are some days where I only eat once a day. But then if there's a lot going on, like if I'm out playing basketball with my son and doing different things like that, I might eat more than that. So the moderation part is going to be unique to each individual person. It's not about the quantity of food that you necessarily eat. It's a combination of your activity level and the amount of food that you take in. And only each individual practitioner can observe that for themselves. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. And then something that's been observed um, when my father was alive, he actually, he didn't do emotional eating. He actually would have an aversion to food when his emotions were high. Is this the mind swinging to uh, the other side of that, where some people do eat when they get emotional and then other people might have an aversion to food when they're emotional? And is there a way to bring that into the middle, sir? Yeah, so these this can be the experience, right, is that when somebody is enraged or angry or really stressed, we might kind of reject food because the body is already taking in so much through the senses and the mind's already shaken up that it's not interested in taking in more things like food. And then there can be kind of, you know, the boomerang effect where now that the mind is kind of coming off of that anger and there's kind of sadness and despair setting in, there can be this eating. You know, this is where people's weight gets fluctuating. You know, when people look at depression, you know, someone's weight can go up and down and up and down because of this. Because in some situations when the mind's really, really stressed, there's not an interest to eat. When the mind's really, really sad, that might be what some people choose to use to lift up their mind. And everybody's a bit different. By getting rid of the pollution of mind and training the mind to eliminate the 10 fetters, this is what will bring the person's activity into the middle that as long as the mind's doing the swinging back and forth, you'll see these fluctuations in weight for some people. You know, they can go up and down quite substantially depending on what their activity is like. But 
with a trained mind, you'll see this stabilization of the mind and you'll see this stabilization and the steadiness of our decisions. And one of those is the type of food and the amount of foods that we intake. You will see this gorging for a few days and then barely eating some food other days. This is those extremes that the mind's going through because of the discontentedness and the up and down aspects of the mind. But when you stabilize the mind and bring it more to the middle, you'll see more consistency, more even keelness in all aspects of your life, including your eating decisions. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. It does not appear that there are any other questions at this time, sir. All right, so we'll move to the next chapter, which is chapter 24. Um, yes, sir. Could I ask you to read chapter 24, please? Sure. So this one is titled, The Noble Disciples Will Not Transgress the Training Guidelines Even for Life's Sake. These names are tough, Miranda. <laughs> I don't usually read these. <laughs> just as Parahada, just as Parahada, just as Parahada, the great ocean is stable and does not overflow its boundaries, so too, when I have prescribed a training guideline for the disciples, they will not do wrong even for life's sake. This is the second astounding and amazing quality that the monks see in these teachings and discipline because of which they are pleased in it. And then here quoted only one of eight astounding and amazing qualities that the monks see in these teachings and discipline. So if you can imagine during the lifetime of a Buddha, as they teach, you know, year after year after year, more and more and more and more students can come to learn, right? And there's no outward characteristic that determines that someone is a Buddha or isn't a Buddha. But if somebody's learning and practicing the true teachings of what it takes to get to enlightenment, they know for themselves that the discontentness in their mind is gradually diminishing. And if they know that this person doesn't have any teachers, then they know that this person is a Buddha because they learn these teachings by themselves and the teachings that they're sharing are leading their mind in their life to an improved condition of mind. It's only a matter of time before countless people are learning with this person, countless people are enlightened, they die, and then their teachings are preserved afterwards that meets all three criteria of a Buddha. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, what he's sharing is, is that as he's sharing his teachings, once people deeply start learning and understanding what it is that he's teaching and they're practicing, and they see the stability of their mind coming more and more, a Buddha can't share all their teachings in one sitting or even in one week or one month. It takes many years for a Buddha to share all their teachings. So over the course of somebody studying with a Buddha for three years or five years or 10 years, as they're having different problems that are coming up, a Buddha is going to share like, oh yeah, here's the solution for that. Or oh yeah, here's the guidance for that. Or here's how to overcome that obstacle. And what he's sharing is that if somebody's deeply learned his practice and they're practicing his teachings and they see the stability of their mind, if he provides some guidance to them, then they will be so confident in his teachings because they will have already seen the progress that they've made up to that point that once he shares a teaching, they won't go against that teaching and do a wrongdoing, even if their life is dependent on it. So if somebody understands 
that killing is harmful and that stealing is harmful, sexual misconduct and lying and substances that cause heedlessness, for example, if you see the truth in this, then if even if your life was at stake, the Buddha is saying you wouldn't lie, you wouldn't steal, you wouldn't take substances that cause heedlessness, even if your life was dependent on it, you wouldn't do these things. So that's what he's sharing here is that his teachings are so deep and so much wisdom and people experience so much benefit with them that even if their life was dependent on breaking the guidance that he provided, they wouldn't break that guidance, even if it meant that they were going to die as a result of it. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. Okay, so now we'll move on to chapter 25. Yes, sir. I'll read chapter 25. Four defilements of ascetics and Brahmins. So too, monks, there are four defilements of ascetics and Brahmins because of which some ascetics and Brahmins do not shine, blaze, and radiate. What for? There are some ascetics and Brahmins who drink liquor and wine and do not refrain from drinking liquor and wine, ingest substances that cause heedlessness. This is the first defilement of ascetics and Brahmins because of which some ascetics and Brahmins do not shine, blaze, and radiate. There are some ascetics and Brahmins who indulge in sexual intercourse and do not refrain from sexual intercourse. This is the second defilement of ascetics and Brahmins because of which some ascetics and Brahmins do not shine, blaze, and radiate. There are some ascetics and Brahmins who accept gold and silver and do not refrain from receiving gold and silver. This is the third defilement of ascetics and Brahmins because of which some ascetics and Brahmins do not shine, blaze, and radiate. There are some ascetics and Brahmins who earn their living by wrong livelihood and do not refrain from wrong livelihood. This is the fourth defilement of ascetics and Brahmins because of which some ascetics and Brahmins do not shine, blaze, and radiate. These are the four defilements of ascetics and Brahmins because of which some ascetics and Brahmins do not shine, blaze, and radiate. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So first, let's talk about what shining, blazing, and radiating means. This is what the enlightened mind experiences, that when you get rid of all the pollution, then there's this radiance or this brightness that shines through in the mind. You can feel it in your own mind as you're elevating the mind to this higher consciousness. There's this brightness that you didn't have before. There's this easiness of smiling. There's this easiness of joy in the mind. There's just this easiness about the mind that it that it shines, it blazes, it radiates. This is what an enlightened being is going to experience. And then the Buddha is explaining that because of these defilements, what a defilement is, is a pollution or a taint. So he's explaining these four pollutions of what people were experiencing during his lifetime. And this is the things that is hindering them from experiencing enlightenment and this shining and this blazing and this radiance of the mind. Because during the lifetime of the Buddha, there was him who had a certain community around him that were learning with him. But then there were other teachers as well who were teaching what they considered to be the path to enlightenment. And they were claiming that it was their teachings that lead to enlightenment. And they were also aesthetics. And then there were also Brahmin or Hindu priests who were practicing what they taught 
in what they had learned all throughout their life. So they were still doing certain things that the Buddha wouldn't do and he wouldn't teach these things because he knew the problems in these and the first one here is drinking liquor and wine or ingesting substances that cause heedlessness that in order to purify the mind the mind needs to have this awareness or this attentiveness this alertness in the mind so if there's an ingesting of substances that cause heedlessness it's going to take away this alertness this brightness this radiance and that means that the mind's still chasing after pleasant feelings through a substance. So if somebody's mind is still craving a substance to produce this temporary pleasant feeling, then they haven't gotten to this natural state of enlightenment where there is no craving, desire, attachment through the sense bases. So an enlightened being isn't going to ingest substances that cause heedlessness because they're on this path and they ultimately get to enlightenment where they've now brought this purity of mind to the point where they're interested in alertness and this brilliance and brightness in the mind and any kind of substances that cause heedlessness is just going to take away from that. So when there's any kind of substance, not just liquor and wine, but the Buddha used this term substances that cause heedlessness. Heedlessness is unattentiveness, unalertness, uncalmness. So even something is as small as caffeine can actually cause heedlessness in the mind. So if somebody's interested in having this shining, this blazing, this radiance, this brightness of the enlightened mind, you would need to gradually purge all substances that cause heedlessness. And an enlightened being would understand why, because they're trying to purify the mind. They're no longer interested in relying on a substance to produce these temporary pleasant feelings. Instead, they're interested in getting to this permanent joy where their mind is unconditioned. This second one is about sexual intercourse, is that you can actually continue to have sexual relationship and be in that first and second stage of enlightenment. But if you would like to get to the third or fourth stage, you'll need to eventually decide to eliminate sensual pleasures through sexual intercourse. And when or if you ever choose to do this is your choice. But if an aesthetic or a Brahmin is having sexual intercourse, then there's still that craving for pleasant feelings and they're temporary, right? The mind hasn't yet overcome this central desire of the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the bodily contact in the mind, because in sexual intercourse, it's one of the most intense, most intimate, most extreme amounts of sensual desire that you can experience. So as long as the mind is holding on to this experience, while it's quite wonderful, it's only temporary, those feelings that we experience through sexual intercourse. But when you can train the mind to let that go, along with all the other sensual desires, then the mind can move into this radiance, this brightness, this shining this mind that is now enlightened. During the lifetime of the Buddha, he didn't allow the ordained practitioners to have gold and silver. That's what they had instead of money and currency. He didn't allow them to accept that because during that lifetime, they could live at somebody's house. They could accept clothing. They could accept food and water and medical care. They didn't need money. Where nowadays, the ordained practitioners and teachers, we do accept financial offerings and resources that are given to us. And then we use those a little bit for our own basic necessities, but then we also contribute that back to the community in terms of building temples and supporting 
projects to share the teachings, you know, purchasing Zoom memberships and live streaming and lights and microphones and things like this to allow us to actually share the teachings where we wouldn't be able to get those things at no cost today. We would need a little bit of financial support in order to allow us to be able to do those things. But during the lifetime of the Buddha, they didn't really need those things. So someone who was accepting gold and silver was still attached and still craving wealth and personal wealth where you can actually be wealthy as an enlightened being but not crave the wealth and this is where someone needs to learn how to be able to accept money but not be attached to it in terms of if you're sharing these teachings as a teacher you're doing that out of the generosity of your heart practicing loving kindness and compassion not expecting anything from your students at all but then if the students would like to make an offering, they make offerings of things to their teacher to help them sustain their life and to be able to offer their teachings to other people. But what needs to get eliminated here is the craving desire attachment for money. So nowadays we can learn how to do that where you can still use money, but you're not, your main goal isn't to just gain profit and gain money and that's not what a teacher should be trying to do. They should instead be looking to share their teachings for the benefit of others. And then this fourth one is all about wrong livelihood. And we talked in a previous chapter, I think it was last week, about right livelihood. And we talked about that more in depth. And there's a chapter in this book, volume 12, chapter 14, that goes through and explains right livelihood in detail because if somebody's practicing wrong livelihood that means they're causing harm through their livelihood and the way that they're choosing to sustain their life so that needs to be purified that needs to be improved or else somebody is going to continue to cause harm in the world through their livelihood they're not going to be able to get to enlightenment because there's a certain amount of ill will that's in the mind if they're still causing harm through their livelihood so their mind isn't going to have this shining or this radiance or this brightness shining through what questions do you guys have on this chapter it does not appear we have any questions at this time sir all right so we'll go to the next one and i wrote a lot about this chapter would you like me to read this miranda um yes please sir okay thank you so this is chapter 26 it's titled unwholesome habits is evil unwholesome livelihood what are unwholesome habits they are unwholesome bodily actions unwholesome verbal actions and evil unwholesome livelihood these are called unwholesome habits and what do these unwholesome habits originate from their origin is stated they should be said to originate from the mind what mind though mind is multiple varied and of different aspects there is mind affected by craving or greed by anger hatred and by ignorance delusion unknowing of true reality unwholesome habits originate from this and where do these unwholesome habits cease without remainder their elimination is stated here a monk abandons bodily misconduct and develops wholesome bodily conduct he abandons verbal misconduct and develops wholesome verbal conduct he abandons mental misconduct 
and develops wholesome mental conduct. He abandons wrong livelihood and gains a living by right livelihood. It is here that unwholesome habits cease without remainder. And how practicing does he practice the way to the elimination of unwholesome habits? Here, a monk awakens enthusiasm for the non-arising of unarisen evil unwholesome states, and he makes effort, arouses energy, exerts his mind, and strives. He awakens enthusiasm for the abandoning of arisen evil unwholesome states. He awakens enthusiasm for the arising of unarisen wholesome states. He awakens enthusiasm for the continuation, non-disappearance, strengthening, increase, and fulfillment by development of arisen wholesome states. And he makes effort, arousing energy, exerts his mind and strives. One so practicing practices the way to the elimination of unwholesome habits. Okay, so here the Buddha is taking us from just describing what an unwholesome habit is, which is unwholesome or unwise bodily actions, verbal actions, and he's describing an unwholesome livelihood here. This is unwholesome habits or certain conduct, right? This is essentially right speech, right action, and right livelihood is part of the Eightfold Path is how to produce wholesome habits. Here, he's describing the unwholesome in a very general way. And then he's saying, you know, where does this originate from? Well, it originates from the mind. The mind is what determines what our bodily actions are, what our verbal actions are, and what our livelihood is. It's all produced from the mind. And then he describes that the mind is affected by craving, anger, and ignorance, or the unknowing of true reality. He describes in the natural law of gamma that he describes how all unwholesome gamma or unwholesome results that we experience is all based in craving, anger, and ignorance. And another way to say that is greed, hatred, and delusion. So when the mind is polluted with craving, anger, and ignorance, then we're going to make unwise decisions through the mind about our bodily conduct, our verbal conduct, and our livelihood. But when we purify the mind of craving, anger, and ignorance, which is what this whole path is about, then we're going to make wise decisions about our bodily actions, our verbal actions, and our livelihood. So where do these unwholesome habits cease? So he's saying, okay, well, when we transform our bodily, verbal, and our livelihood from being unwholesome to wholesome, that's where these unwholesome habits are eliminated. And then how do you practice to eliminate these unwholesome habits? What he's talking about here is right effort from the Eightfold Path. And here it's being described a slightly different way. There's four aspects to right effort. One is you prevent any unwholesome mental states from arising. The second one is any unwholesome mental states that are currently in the mind. You work to eliminate them. Any wholesome mental states that are not yet in the mind, you work to cultivate those and bring those into the mind. And any wholesome mental states that are currently in the mind, you support those, you encourage those, you don't allow them to fade. You bring them to full perfection and full growth. That's what right effort is all about. So you need to take the effort to eliminate unwholesome speech, actions, and livelihood. These things don't just fall away automatically on their own. 
Instead, you need to learn the wisdom, you need to independently verify it through your reflection, and you need to practice by applying right effort and all the other teachings on the Eightfold Path, and through that effort to eliminate the unwholesome, then you can arise the wholesome. That's what he's describing here. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. All right, so we'll move to chapter 27. Yes, sir. I'll read chapter 27. Words which should be studied, learned, and investigated in the foremost assembly. And what is the assembly? What is the assembly trained in investigation, not in conceited talk? Here, in this kind of assembly, when those discourses are being recited that are mere poetry composed by poets, beautiful in words and phrases, created by outsiders, spoken by their disciples, the monks are not interested to listen to them, do not lend an ear to them, or apply their minds to understand them. They do not think those teachings should be studied and learned. But when those discourses spoken by the Tathagata are being recited that are deep, deep in meaning, world transcending, connected with emptiness, the monks are interested to listen to them, lend an ear to them, and apply their minds to understand them. They think those teachings should be studied and learned. And having learned those teachings, they question each other about them and investigate them thoroughly, asking, how is this? What is the meaning of this? They disclose to others what is obscure and clarify what is unclear and dispel their confusion about numerous misunderstandings. This is called the assembly trained in investigation, not in conceited talk. And what is the assembly trained in conceited talk not an investigation. Here, in this kind of assembly, when those discourses are being spoken by the Tathagata, are being recited that are deep, deep in meaning, world transcending, connected with emptiness, the monks are not interested to listen to them, do not lend an ear to them or apply their minds to understand them. They do not think those teachings should be studied and learned. But when those discourses are being recited that are mere poetry composed by poets, beautiful in words and phrases, created by outsiders, spoken by their disciples, they are interested to listen to them, lend an ear to them, and apply their minds to understand them. They think those teachings should be studied and learned. And having learned those teachings, they do not question each other about them or investigate them thoroughly, asking, how is this? What is the meaning of this? They do not disclose to others what is obscure and clarify what is unclear or dispel their confusion about numerous misunderstandings. This is called the assembly trained in conceited talk, not an investigation. These monks are the two kinds of assemblies. Of these two kinds of assemblies, the assembly trained in investigation, not in conceited talk, is foremost. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So this is another ideal time to remind you that there are multiple teachers who were teaching during the lifetime of the Buddha, all claiming that it was their teachings that lead to enlightenment. But of course, we know it's the Buddha's teachings. That's why they're still around 2,500 years later. And we don't know what those other teachings were other than the indications that we're seeing through the teachings of the Buddha. Here, he's explaining how his group of ordained practitioners and his household practitioners and people who were learning with him 
They're not interested in this conceited talk, this arrogant, this pridefulness. Instead, they're interested in investigating the teachings. He taught people to come examine his teachings, not to believe them, but to come examine them. Because he knew if people investigated them and examined them, they could see the truth for themselves. They could independently verify the teachings. And then when they practiced the teachings, they could see that it improved the condition of their mind. So when he taught these teachings, as he's describing here, these teachings are very challenging for the mind to uh, listen to, and they need to actively learn, they need to actively investigate, they need to ask questions, they need to deeply understand them, they need to continually, thoroughly investigate them in order to experience the benefits of them. But this other group that he's talking about with conceitedness, not a specific group, but just in general, he's talking about these discourses that are just poetry, that are kind of beautiful in phrases that are spoken by outsiders. You might have heard some of these kind of discourses or or YouTube videos or podcasts where, you know, there's lots of beautiful music playing. There's lots of words that are kind of being shared. They sound beautiful. They're easy on the ear. But when you get done with it, it's like, what did I really learn with that? You might not have felt like there's something tangible that you can walk away with. But with the Buddhist teachings, when you learn about things like the Four Noble Truths and the Three Universal Truths and the Eightfold Path and the Five Precepts and the Seven Factors of Enlightenment and the Brahma Viharas and the Four Foundations of Mindfulness and the Ten Fetters and all these other teachings, when you start understanding them deeply, while it's a challenge for you to learn them and gain this wisdom, you walk away with something that's real tangible that you can practice. And through that effort and through that work, then you get to see that the results of the mind's improving. But if you just listen to these beautiful phrases and beautiful words, you're not walking away with something that's necessarily tangible. And then he's saying that, you know, people who are essentially deeply steeped in his teachings, they're not going to be interested in listening to those beautiful words and phrases because it doesn't really do anything for them. They're going to be interested in deeply understanding the teachings of the Buddha. But then he's saying that there's these other communities that aren't interested in listening to the Buddhist teachings. They're just not interested to hear them because essentially if you listen to a Buddha speak and if you hear a Tathagata and you understand what he's sharing, it takes a lot of work to, to listen to somebody who's really sharing the true teachings and the real wisdom because now your mind has to do the work to eliminate craving and eliminate anger and eliminate ignorance and it's a lot of work and sometimes people aren't interested in that and they would like to turn away from it. Instead, someone might be interested in those beautiful words and phrases and those poetry because it's just kind of easy on the ears, so to speak. But the Buddha is saying that this is a assembly that's trained in conceited talk, that there's arrogance and pride there rather than investigating the teachings to see if there's any, really anything tangible there that you can walk away with that can improve the condition of the mind or their life. Instead, it's just this kind of poetry and beautiful words and phrases and we just feel all good listening to it but then when it's over with you don't really have anything to really change the condition of the mind and he's saying this is basically born in conceit rather than investigation where his teachings he's not sharing it based in conceit he's sharing it based on 
let's investigate these teachings and really dive into them and making sure that we sink our teeth into them, we soak the mind into them and really examine them and see if they're true or not. That's where you're going to really experience the true progress on this path. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. All right, so we'll go to chapter 28. So I should read this one, Miranda? Um, yes, if you would, sir, I would appreciate it. Sure. Thank you. So this one overall title is titled, Why Every Practitioner Should Study the Tathagata's Words. This is why everyone should learn the teachings of the Buddha through his own words, the words of the Buddha. And then each discourse is titled separately as well. This one is titled, Words Which Should Be Studied, Learned, and Investigated in the Foremost Assembly. Here, in this kind of assembly, when those discourses are being recited that are mere poetry composed by poets, beautiful in words and phrases, created by outsiders, spoken by their disciples, the monks do not want to listen to them, do not lend an ear to them, or apply their minds to understand them. They do not think those teachings should be studied and learned. But when those discourses spoken by the Tathagata are being recited that are deep, deep in meaning, world transcending, connected with emptiness, the monks want to listen to them, lend an ear to them, and apply their minds to understand them. They think those teachings should be studied and learned. And having learned those teachings, they question each other about them and investigate them thoroughly, asking, how is this? What is the meaning of this? They disclose to others what is obscure and clarify what is unclear and dispel their confusion about numerous misunderstandings. This is called the assembly trained in investigation, not in conceited talk. Words that should be studied and mastered. Simile of the drum peg. Monks, once in the past, the Dasarahas, I don't know what that is, had a kettle drum called the summoner. When the summoner became cracked, these people inserted another peg. Eventually, the time came when the summoner's original drum head had disappeared and only a collection of pegs remained. So too, monks, the same thing will happen with the monks in the future. When those discourses spoken by the Tathagata that are deep, deep in meaning, world transcending, dealing with emptiness, are being recited, they will not be eager to listen to them, nor lend an ear to them, nor apply their minds to understand them, and they will not think those teachings should be studied and mastered. But when those discourses that are mere poetry, composed by poets, beautiful in words and phrases, created by outsiders, spoken by their disciples, are being recited, they will be eager to listen to them, lend an ear to them, will apply their minds to them, and they will think those teachings should be studied and mastered. In this way, monks, those discourses spoken by the Tathagata that are deep, deep in meaning, world transcending, dealing with emptiness, will disappear. Therefore, monks, you should train yourselves thus, 
when those discourses spoken by the Tathagata are deep, deep in meaning, world-transcending, dealing with emptiness, are being recited, we will be eager to listen to them, we'll lend an ear to them, we'll apply our minds to understand them, and we will think those teachings should be studied and mastered. Thus should you train yourselves. So I'm going to pause here and just kind of share a little bit of teachings rather than go through all of them. So this first one, we just studied that in the previous discourse, the previous chapter. Here, this one where the Buddha is talking about the simile of the drum peg, he's talking about his teachings disappearing and that during his lifetime, of course, the teachings were very strong, very vibrant. He's there. He can teach. If somebody has a misunderstanding, he can clarify it. But then once he dies, he predicted that his teachings would gradually decline to the point where we are today, where people argue and fight over what did he actually really teach because it was 2,500 years ago and the teachings aren't as strong and as vibrant as they were during his lifetime. But here, the resources that we study with and the teachings that you're learning, they're vibrant, they're strong. You can see for yourself that these translations and these words of the Buddha will work to guide you to enlightenment. But he's sharing here that over time, his words would disappear. They would essentially no longer exist in the world because people would have lost the meaning because they would have been so busy listening to the poets and the poetry that they wouldn't be interested in learning those deeply spoken discourses that have this deep meaning that are actually much more challenging to understand and actually practice in order to get to enlightenment. So now let's go on for the rest of this. Words from singleness of mind. Again, I can't pronounce this name. The Tathagata teaches the teachings to others only to give them knowledge. When the talk is finished, then I steady my mind internally, quiet it, bring it to singleness, and concentrate on it. That same sign of concentration as before, in which I constantly reside. So here the Buddha is saying that when he teaches, before he's teaching, essentially his mind is focused on singleness, singleness of mind. He delivers his discourse, and then afterwards his mind is still quieted and focused and concentrated. His mind doesn't go up and down. He's staying focused all the way through the discourse. Words that are just so, not otherwise. From the night he fully awakened, monks, until the night he attains final nibbana or final enlightenment. In this interval, whatever he speaks, talks of, and expounds, all that is just so, not otherwise. So what they're explaining here is that from the time that the Buddha awakened to enlightenment until he died, everything that he spoke was the teachings that lead to enlightenment. He wasn't interested in just, you know, kind of chit-chatting here and there and kind of talking about the weather and, you know, these kind of things. His only interest was to share the teachings during that 45-year teaching career that he had that helps people get to enlightenment because a Buddha knows that their time is limited and that other people after them aren't going to know the teachings as deeply as them. So they take every opportunity that they have in order to share their teachings with people so that people will actually deeply understand them. 
but they only share teachings with people who are interested in learning them. They don't force them. They don't try to pressure people into learning their teachings. But when people ask questions and people are interested, they will share the teachings to help people understand what it takes to get to enlightenment. And from the time that he attained enlightenment until he died, they're saying that's what he spoke about is how to get to enlightenment. Words of immediately effective teachings. Good monks, so you have been guided by me with these teachings, which are visible hearing now, immediately effective, inviting inspection, onward leading to be experienced by the wise for themselves. So here he's saying that his teachings are visible here and now, meaning you can investigate them and you can independently verify them for yourself. And once you do that, if you start practicing them, they're immediately effective. You can start seeing that the teachings that a Tathagata or a Buddha shares can be effective and help you to experience more and more clarity of mind right away effectively. It's not meaning you're going to get to enlightenment right away, but you can learn something like the universal truth of impermanence. You can investigate it here and now, see the clarity of that here and now, and then it can immediately be effective to help you. And then it's inviting you. These teachings are inviting you to investigate them. And then as you experience learning them more and more, the mind's going to become more and more wise and you can see for yourself the truth. Words of the teachings and discipline, words to be resided with as one's own island, as one's own refuge. Ananda, it may be that you will think the teacher's instruction has ceased. Now we have no teacher. It should not be seen like this, Ananda, for what I have taught and explained to you as teachings and discipline will at my passing be your teacher. Those monks, Ananda, either now or after I'm gone, who reside with themselves as their own island, with themselves as their own refuge, with no other refuge, who reside with the teachings as their island, with the teachings as their refuge, with no other refuge, it is these monks, Ananda, who will be for me greatest of those dedicated to the training. So here, Ananda was pleading with the Buddha not to die because Ananda... I feel was probably attached to the Buddha and the Buddha was giving a heads up that he was about to die and Ananda was pleading with him not to die and the Buddha was saying you know once I die these teachings that I've shared with you for 45 years that's going to be your teacher because I'm this physical body is dying and is going to be dead so now you can just allow these teachings to be your teacher and those people those practitioners who allow the teachings to be their teacher as their own independent journey to enlightenment with the guidance of teachers because you can't attain enlightenment by yourself. Sometimes people take this teaching about allowing the teachings and allowing yourself to reside as your own island. They think that this means that they don't need any teachers. But if you look at the totality of the Buddhist teachings, he explains to you that you need teachers. Instead, what he's saying is be sure you're on this independent journey that you take the initiative upon yourself, that you have your own motivation to investigate these teachings and now allow the teachings to be what guides you to enlightenment with the guidance of teachers. That's why he taught so many people during his lifetime and then those people became the teachers who taught other people. If you could get to enlightenment by yourself, he would have said, 
okay, I got to enlightenment. You guys can do it yourself. I'm going back to the palace. Now go ahead and go do, get to enlightenment by yourself, right? He wouldn't ex spend 45 years sharing the teachings of what it took to get to enlightenment if everybody could do it by themselves. So here he's just helping you to see that this is an independent journey. You're going to need the teachings and be sure that you look to those teachings to be your guidance. And this is why you should study the words of the Buddha and not rely on just the commentary of what people share with you are the teachings. Words to be undertook as taught not to be abolished. As long as the monks do not give instruction on anything that has not been taught or abolish anything that has already been taught, but undertake and practice the training guidelines as they have been taught, only growth is to be predicted for them, not decline. Here, what the Buddha is explaining is don't change my teachings. That's what he's saying, is don't give instruction on anything that I haven't taught. Don't provide instruction on those things. So the Buddha talks about his undeclared teachings, and he says, I didn't declare these teachings. So you shouldn't give instruction on those because the Buddha didn't give instruction on those. Or if there's something that somebody is contemplating, you know, whether to get a vaccine or not, for example, the Buddha didn't teach about this. It's not part of the path to enlightenment. So why would a teacher that is sharing the path to enlightenment talk about whether to get a vaccine or not? It's up to each individual person to make that decision based on what they understand about medicine, not the teachings of a teacher who's helping people get to enlightenment. Everybody needs to make that decision for themselves. So he's saying, don't give instruction on anything that has not been taught. And anything that he has taught, don't abolish it, don't eliminate it. So essentially what he's saying is don't change the teachings because a Buddha is a discoverer, the declarer, and the originator of the path to enlightenment. And any Buddha after Gautama Buddha would be rediscovering those teachings. And you shouldn't change the teachings of Gautama Buddha, and you shouldn't change the teachings of any other Buddha either, because that person is the discoverer, the declarer, the originator, or the rediscoverer, the re-originator, the establishing and declaring what the path to enlightenment is. And if you start adjusting their teachings and tinkering with their teachings, this is just going to make it difficult for everybody to get to enlightenment because it's going to make the path more and more murky and more and more gray. What a Buddha is doing is putting lights along the side of a, the path, making it extremely clear for people of what it takes to get to enlightenment. And if we start moving those lights around or we start turning off some of those lights or things like this, it's just going to make it more difficult for people to get to enlightenment after a Buddha's death. So it's important to not change a Buddha's teachings for any reason whatsoever. It would be for the detriment of many, many, many people if somebody were to change a Buddha's teachings. And that's what we see a lot in the world is a lot of changing. And that's why the Buddha predicted that his teachings would gradually decline like this. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Um, yes, sir. On YouTube, Tonka asks, a few times it was mentioned in the first part, deep meaning, dealing with emptiness. Could you elaborate on the emptiness that's being spoken about here? Yeah. Sir? So emptiness, as the mind is polluted with the ten fetters, 
the mind is quite full. It's quite bombarded. It's quite burdened carrying around all this pollution. But when you learn the teachings of the Buddha and you clear out the mind of all that pollution, we call that emptiness. The mind is unconditioned. So when the Buddha says his teachings are dealing with emptiness, he's dealing with how to eliminate this pollution of mind so that now the mind is unconditioned and it's now empty. You're still going to have memories as an enlightened being. You're going to have deep, deep wisdom, but the mind's going to be very light because it's not going to feel like it's burdened with this pollution of craving, anger, and ignorance and those 10 fetters. So that's what the emptiness is, is that the mind feels light. It feels empty. You're not holding on to the anger and hostility from yesterday or the day before or last month. You know, when you're going around your coworkers, if they did something in the past when your mind's unenlightened, you might be holding on to it. You might hold a grudge. But when you let go of all that stuff, the mind is empty, right? It doesn't have that pollution. Of course, you have wisdom, you have memories and things like this, but the mind is light. It's uplifted. It's radiant. It's bright. It's shining. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. uh, it does not appear that there are any other questions at this time. All right, so we will move to chapter 29. Yes, sir. I will read chapter 29. Those who cause the good teachings to disappear, first discourse. Monks, those monks who explain non-teachings as teachings are acting for the harm of many people, the unhappiness of many people, for the ruin, harm, and suffering of many people, of heavenly beings and human beings. These monks generate much unwholesome karma and cause these good wholesome teachings to disappear. Monks, those monks who explain teachings as non-teachings, non-discipline as discipline, discipline as non-discipline. Monks, those monks who explain what has not been stated and spoken by the perfectly enlightened one as having been stated and spoken by him. Monks, those monks who explain what has been stated and spoken by the perfectly enlightened one as not having been stated and spoken by him. Monks, those monks who explain what has not been practiced by the perfectly enlightened one as having been practiced by him. Monks, those monks who explain what has been practiced by the perfectly enlightened one as not be having been practiced by him. Monks, those monks who explain what has not been prescribed by the perfectly enlightened one as having been prescribed by him. Monks, those monks who explain what has been prescribed by the perfectly enlightened one as not having been prescribed by him are acting for the harm of many people, for the unhappiness of many people, for the ruin, harm, and suffering of many people, of heavenly beings and human beings. These monks generate much unwholesome karma and cause these good teachings to disappear. Venerable sir, it is said, division in the community, division in the community, how is their division in the community? Here, Ananda, monks explain non-teachings as teachings and teachings as non-teachings. They explain non-discipline as discipline and discipline as non-discipline. They explain what has not been stated and spoken by the perfectly enlightened one as having been stated and spoken by him and what has been stated and spoken by the perfectly enlightened one as not having been stated and spoken by him. They explain what has not been practiced by the perfectly enlightened one as having been practiced by him. 
what has been practiced by the perfectly enlightened one as not having been practiced by him. They explain what has not been prescribed by the perfectly enlightened one as having been prescribed by him and what has been prescribed by the perfectly enlightened one as not having been prescribed by him. On these 10 grounds, they withdraw and go apart. They perform legal acts separately and recite the training guidance of these teachings separately. It is in this way, Ananda, that there is division in the community. But venerable sir, when one causes division in a harmonious community, what does one generate? One generates evil lasting for an eon, Ananda, but venerable sir, what is that evil lasting for an eon? One is tormented in hell for an eon, Ananda. One who causes division in the community is bound for misery, bound for hell, to reside there for an eon. Delighting in division, established in non-teachings, he falls away from security from bondage or enlightenment. Having caused division in a harmonious community, he is tormented in hell for an eon. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So this is kind of building on that last teaching that we were just talking about, where the Buddha is talking about his teachings disappearing and why that occurs. And he talks about this in other parts of his teachings as well. And this is one where he's being very clear about it. He's saying people who explain non-teachings as what he actually taught, they're acting for the harm of many people, the unhappiness, the ruin, the suffering of many people, many beings. And they're causing themselves unwholesome karma. The results of their decisions is it's going to lead to unwholesome results. And remember that a Buddha is the discoverer, the declarer, the originator of the path to enlightenment. There's absolutely no reason to change a Buddha's teachings whatsoever. Enlightened beings that got enlightened during the lifetime of the Buddha, they would understand that perfectly clear without a Buddha even explaining that. But the thing is, is that around a teacher, there's going to be lots of people at different stages of enlightenment and some people who are in the jhanas and some people who aren't even in the jhanas. So when a Buddha dies, let's just say there's, you know, there's countless people who are enlightened, but let's just say there's 5,000 people who are enlightened. Well, that means there's probably 10,000 people in some other stage of enlightenment. And there's maybe 20 or 30,000 people who are in the jhanas and maybe 100,000 people who were kind of like still kind of working their way to the jhanas. So that means there's still ego, there's still arrogance. They don't have the clarity of mind to understand that changing a Buddhist teachings is going to lead to harm of themselves and others as well. So here the Buddha is explaining, you know, don't change the teachings that I share because he knows that if people change them, that it's going to lead to the detriment of many people uh, long into the future. But that is actually what occurred is that people did change his teachings. His teachings were very vibrant for about 500 years after his death. And then they slowly declined from there. And now we're in a period of time where we're looking to restore the teachings and bring them back into the world in a way that people can deeply understand them. And then they can investigate them and actually get the results for themselves and see the condition of the mind improving. But we should always ensure that we're not changing a Buddhist teachings in any way. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Yes, sir. On YouTube, Brandon Haynes asks, is this referring to people who purposely change the teachings out of envy? 
that can occur, right? Because of envy and jealousy. Some people not only change the teachings, but the Buddha even talks in his teachings about people who steal his teachings. And then they claim that those are their teachings and they start teaching those teachings. But the thing is, is that another individual isn't ever going to be able to share the teachings of a Buddha as clearly and as precisely as a Buddha themselves. So whether somebody changes the teachings out of envy, which is going to lead to the harm of many people, or if somebody tries to steal a Buddhist teachings and claim that they're their teachings, either way, they're not going to be successful in their pursuit because a Buddha's wisdom is so deep and so profound, somebody else can't replicate that. But somebody can, out of envy or jealousy, as you're saying, change and modify their teachings. But typically, I think the reason why this occurs is more out of conceit, more out of arrogance, more out of ego, where somebody thinks that they're smarter than the Buddha. Because during the lifetime of a Buddha, you know, right right now, we look at the Buddha as like raise the roof, right? It's the Buddha, 2,500 years of history. His teachings have been around for a long time, like my goodness, this gentleman was a Buddha. But during his lifetime, people looked at him as just like them. You know, he had the same hair, the same skin color, the same facial features. You know, yeah, he was used to be a prince and he stepped down from that. And the, certainly there was a core group of students who admired him and respected him like there was no tomorrow. But then there was other people who didn't actually investigate his teachings and they didn't know how impactful they were. And they were disrespectful and they were degrading to him in different ways. But his mind wasn't affected by it because it was already liberated. So there's no outward appearance of this person's a Buddha. A Buddha doesn't go around performing a bunch of miracles to try to convince people that they're a Buddha. In fact, it's actually better if people don't know who a Buddha is, because then the Buddha can actually observe the person's quality of mind. Because if that person is hateful and vindictive and jealous, a Buddha can see that much more readily. Whereas if there was like a certain marking on the forehead or a certain shape of ear that could be determined that this person is absolutely a Buddha, then when people are around that person, they would be on their best behavior. And that Buddha wouldn't be able to use their their own insight into this person's conduct to be able to see the condition of their mind and then be able to help that person. So yes, it does happen out of envy, I'm sure, and jealousy, but I think more so out of conceit and arrogance. And a Buddha is not interested in projecting into the world that I am a Buddha, right? That would be like arrogance and pride. Instead, they're going to be very humble. They're just going to go about their work and do their work. And then by people not knowing that they're a Buddha, it actually is, makes them more effective, like an undercover Buddha, right? Like an undercover police officer can be more successful in observing crime in their neighborhood than someone who's in a uniform and walks around. Because as soon as people see the person in a uniform, everyone's in their on their best behavior. But that undercover police officer who's in street clothes, smoking a cigarette on the corner and kind of blending in, they can actually see a lot more of the criminal's doing crimes than the actual uniformed police officer. So a Buddha is the same way as if they don't let people know that they're a Buddha, they can actually be more effective at observing people's minds. And they do that out of the benefit of other people, not as a malicious way, but as a way of being able to clearly observe in an, a, uh, in an objective manner 
of this person's mind so that then they can get help through the teachings that will actually help them. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. It does not appear that there are any other questions at this time. All right, so we'll move on to chapter 30. So it looks like my turn to read, right? Um, yes, sir, please. So this particular chapter, I can actually just kind of summarize it rather than reading all the way through it, is that it's exactly the same thing Miranda just read, except it's flipped. Instead of saying these are the things that lead to the degrading of the teachings, the Buddha is saying these are the things that sustain the good teachings. So rather than reading through this whole chapter, what he's saying is explain non-teachings as non-teachings. You know, this the Buddha did not teach and share. This is what the Buddha didn't teach. Explain that this is what the Buddha taught and explain that as teachings. Non-discipline as non-discipline. Discipline as discipline and all the way through. It's just completely reversed from what Miranda just read. And why doing this, by deeply understanding what the Buddha actually taught and explaining it as this is what he taught, then this is what's going to sustain the good teachings in the world. And that's what this community is interested in doing, is ensuring that we look to his original source teachings. We don't believe his teachings. We learn them, we reflect on them, independently verify them, and then practice them so that then we can see the results for ourselves. And that way we can't be misled that even this book, this book is just a paper with some ink and some blotches of ink. Or if you're looking at a computer screen, you know, some, some pixels that are lit up. We don't just believe what we see here. There's been 2,500 years of impermanence. Instead, we learn it, we reflect on it, independently verify it, investigate it, and then we practice it and see if it improves the condition of our mind. And if you're seeing the diminishing of discontentedness through doing the work, then you know that these are the true teachings. And that's how you know that these teachings are being explained as teachings that the Buddha actually shared because you can see the condition of your mind gradually improving. And that's how you know you're learning the truth because you see anger diminishing to frustration, frustration diminishing to irritation, to annoyance, to eventually the same thing occurs and the mind is peaceful. You no longer are shaken up by whatever just occurred. And that's how you know what you're learning and practicing is the truth. Any questions on this chapter? Um, no, sir. There are no questions on this chapter, sir. Okay. So today we studied up to chapter 30. And next week we're going to be going from chapter 31 up to chapter 40. So you can read this ahead of time in volume 12. Just read chapter 31 to 40. It'll probably take you a good hour, but you're not interested in doing that all at one time. What I usually suggest for students is just to read like, 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes at the most per day. What you would like to do is read like one or two chapters a day. This takes like small little bites and then you can chew it and digest it a lot easier. Whereas if you try to sit and you read for an entire hour or two, even though the mind might have a craving to do that and it just wants to do that, it's going to be like taking a big bite of a pizza and trying to chew on that. 
And now you're just trying to chew and chew and chew and it's a lot harder to chew that. Instead, you just take these small little bites, you chew for a little while, you digest it. You take a small little bite, chew and digest it. So essentially by you reading just one or two chapters, which should take you like maybe 10, 15 minutes, by you doing that, then you have a whole 24 hours to reflect on that and start thinking it through, start to investigate it and see if it's 100% true or not before you move on to the next chapter. Whereas if you try to digest all of this at one time, it can be kind of overbearing for the mind. So I suggest that people just read a little by little each day. And all of these books, volumes two through 13, if you read just 10, 15 minutes a day, essentially 10 chapters a week, that'll take you about a year and a half, which is no big deal because you shouldn't be in a rush to get to enlightenment. You can't hurry your way to enlightenment. It's going to take some time to gradually build your wisdom. So if you get comfortable with taking those little bit of bites and gradually progressing, not only on the path to enlightenment, but in other parts of your life too, whether it's planning for a big event or whether it's something else that you're looking to do, if you just plan on doing little by little each day, you'll build up to something more sustainable, something more solid. And that's what you're looking to do with your life practice is build something that's solid and sustainable. And then by doing it little by little, that's what will allow you to do that. So thank you all for joining for today's class in the Pali Canon and English Study Group. Tomorrow in the group learning program, we're going to be studying the five hindrances. These are like the five obstacles to getting to enlightenment because that's kind of like the last official class of the group learning program. And for seven months, I've been teaching what it takes to get to enlightenment. And then the very last class is these are the obstacles of what's going to hinder you from getting to enlightenment. And as part of that, we're, I'm going to be teaching the seven factors of enlightenment because those are solutions to how to train the mind to overcome the five hindrances. So once you understand what the five hindrances are and you can identify them in your own mind, then you can apply the solutions of how to overcome them so that you won't experience these obstacles. I don't have the five hindrances in volume one, which is the source text for that program, but I do have the seven factors of enlightenment in chapter three. The five hindrances are in other parts of the book series, but this class is kind of a bit of a bridge to help you move over from the group learning program over to the Pali Canon and English study group if you would like to do that and help you understand what the obstacles are of getting to enlightenment. And then next Wednesday, we're going to be doing the loving kindness meditation in our meditation class on Wednesday. So thank you all for contributing to our class. Thank you for your questions and your participation. Thank you for your diligence to actively learning and practicing these teachings. I'll see you in one of our future classes. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.